Well, thank you for that introduction, Paul. I'm glad I haven't left Christ's church yet. Um, I'm really, yet, um, <laughs> I really want to begin by saying how grateful I am for having been asked to speak here. Um, I have such enormous respect for Dave Zoll, for Mockingbird. No one does what they do. Um, I read it every day. I talk with Dave about it a lot. And just to be a part of this conference means a lot to me. Um, and really, you know, this church is very special to me, too. So it's actually slightly intimidating to be here speaking um, where I've heard so many wonderful sermons. And, you know, I have to follow James Wilson, a rock star, who just totally knocked Faulkner out of the park uh, in the previous uh, uh, breakout sessions. So um, I'm just really grateful and hopefully um, we'll speak to you about hope in a way that connects with you. Um, and in fact, that's one thing I wanted to start by saying, is that as I prepared this talk, I, I realized at a certain point in time that essentially I was writing a theological essay on hope that would totally bore all of you and be lost in meaningless abstractions, and it would be a total indulgence of my own intellectual vanity. And about a week ago, um, Actually, I was at church, and Dave Johnson was preaching, and I just had this moment where I realized I couldn't give that talk. Um, I couldn't just come up here and hide behind intellectual abstractions. I couldn't come up here and be a theologian or pretend to be or try to be. Uh, and I decided what I wanted to do was just speak more informally and speak from the heart and really tell you what I think about hope like from my, from my soul to yours, heart to heart. Deep reaching out to deep, I hope. Um, the title of this uh, conference is Hope Amidst the Ruins, which I think points to something essential, which is that um, should we experience hope or get a glimpse of it, we do so amidst trials and tribulations. Uh, we do so amidst ruins, political, economic, personal, the ruin of our failures, uh, strained families, failed relationships, broken marriages, addiction, despair, and the general ravages of sin that course its way through creation. Um, perhaps the biggest impediment to living with hope is just living with your eyes open. Um, the world provides so many reasons not to hope. Um, cynicism is the easy default mode, I think, for anyone who looks around and sees the enormous amount of suffering loneliness, cruelty, and hate that marks the human condition. Um, the, this title I mentioned, Hope Amidst the Ruins, it's a play on the title of Walker Percy's great novel, uh, Love in the Ruins. And this is how Walker Percy begins that novel, just to clue you in on the, the literary reference that this conference is taking its uh, nod from. Now in these dread latter days of the old, violent, beloved USA, and of the Christ-forgetting, Christ-haunted, death-dealing Western world, I came to myself in a grove of pines, and the question came to me, has it happened at last? And then, knock my watch out. Um, sorry about that. Um, and then a page later, he says, these are bad times. Principalities and powers are everywhere victorious. Wickedness flourishes in high places. That's how Percy begins the novel, and I feel like it provides a good context for thinking about hope. 
Because, as I said, if we do manage to get a glimpse of hope, we do so amid suffering. Um, RJ indicated in his uh, talk this morning that really at Mockingbird, when we were talking about hope, you're talking about suffering. But I also think that uh, suffering's the beginning. It's the first word, but not the last word. And I hope by the end of the talk, I'll be able to give you maybe a perspective on, on what hope looks like practically. Because it really is something. One reason I wanted to talk to you very personally about hope is that it is, to me, um, it's not an abstraction. It's a, it's a condition of our existence as human beings. It's what allows us to live. It what, it's what allows us to move forward as human beings. And so to talk about it too abstractly, I think, is a mistake. Um, the title of my talk is The Wound and the Gift on Being Saved by Hope. Now, that line, the wound and the gift, comes from an unpublished uh, section of an Auden poem that I wanted to read to you, um, just to give you some context why I call it the wound and the gift. Um, it's a, a fragment when he was working on his great Advent poem for the time being. He says this, Whenever there is a gift, there is a guilty secret, a thorn in the flesh, both are given together, and the nature of one depends on the other. Let me say that one more time. Whenever there is a gift, there is a guilty secret. A thorn in the flesh, both are given together, and the nature of one depends on the other. And the reason I chose that for the title of my talk is that I think it encapsulates most of what I have to say about hope. That the gift and the wound are given together that hope somehow comes out of our suffering. It's not in opposition to suffering. It's not antagonistic to it. The two are joined at the hip. And I have a number of points I want to make that hopefully uh, bring that out. Now, um, I'm going to begin with a definition of hope that I hope points to something essential about its nature. And it's from... Uh, Glenn Tinder. He's a political philosopher. He wrote a book called The Fabric of Hope. And it's, by my lights, the best book I've ever read on hope. Um, it's thorough. It's amazing in all sorts of ways. And he defines hope as being willing to entrust your life to time. I'll say that again. Tinder defines hope as being willing to entrust your life to time. Accepting that. Being resigned to the fact that we are creatures who inhabit time. Now, why is that important? Why did I want to begin with that definition? Well, I think every point I make will somehow come out of that, uh, that follows from that. Um, it's something that's essential to our nature as creatures. We exist in time. We are historical beings. Um, and I think, as, as my talk unfolds, that that emphasis on time will be something that's very important. So I highlight it here at the start, and uh, hopefully it will make more sense by the end. Now, I have five, five points I want to make regarding hope that follow from this definition of uh, hope being willing to entrust your life to time. Uh, the first is that hope, for me, is about engagement. Um, hope, for me, is about engagement. It is the opposite of escapism. It is the opposite of isolation, withdrawal, and cynicism. Uh, that is, engagement with our fellow human beings, engagement with those around us is necessarily a hopeful act, I think. It is by nature supported by hope, whether implicit or explicit. Um, we are by nature incomplete. This is something that the emphasis on time points to. 
Time is about change. If something's eternal, it has to be complete. It is without change. So the fact that we are creatures who exist in time uh, means we're somehow incomplete and need others. And sort of living into that, I think, is something that is um, marked by hope or sustained by hope. And I think especially, this, this seems like a simple point, but so much of Christianity is totally infected with the spirit of escapism. Think about some of the hymns we sing. I'll fly away, right? It's great in No Brother Where Art Thou. It's a great song uh, in some ways, but as a theological statement, it's hopelessly, hope, uh, hopelessly wrong-headed. I'll fly away, O oh glory, right? I'll break these prison, these prison bars on earth. It's about fleeing the earth. It's about escaping rather than living patiently and hopefully and lovingly uh, with the people around us. It's ultimately about escape. And I think this is something that in terms of how Christians think about uh, the end of the world, uh, we are always on the brink of being guilty of escapism. That this world is terrible, there's suffering, but one day we will leave it. One day we will go to heaven, right? And heaven's sort of an escape hatch from all the suffering in the world. And it becomes a kind of excuse for a lack of engagement with those around us. It becomes an excuse for that. We are content, in other words, not to sort of uh, engage those around us precisely because we know that it's bad now, but I'll just hunker down and one day I'll fly away. So I think really to begin with, I think hope has to do with a posture of engagement rather than that of escapism, which is a perennial temptation for Christians. <clears throat> Which is one reason why, I should say too, so many critics of uh, Christianity and religion more broadly, this is a move they make. Christianity is the opiate of the masses, right? It's about placating those who suffer now with the promise of eternal reward. You may not live well in this life, but someday you will. And there's an undeniable element to that in Christianity. I'm not trying to totally push against that idea, but when it becomes a form of escapism, that is when uh, it's really showing a profound lack of hope, I think. There's a difference between hope and wishful thinking. Hope is hard. Wishful thinking is not. There's also a difference between hope and optimism. Optimism is not the same as hope. Now, this leads into my second point, that uh, hope has to do with the relationship between the present and the future. It ha when I say hope is the willingness to entrust our lives to time, this is one thing I'm getting at, that it involves a certain posture towards the future that does not merely turn into wishful thinking. Um, I want to read you a passage from Glenn Tinder's book, The Fabric of Hope. He says this, Sin is the evasion of time. In giving way to nostalgia, for example, we flee from time into the past. Evading time is accomplished mainly, however, by constructing worlds, orders of life in which everything has its assigned place, and all events are foreknown if not willed. There are personal worlds, occupied perhaps by only a single individual. And there is also the world, 
the surrounding order of society treated as objectively knowable, humanly controllable, and morally final. A world is always a kind of fortress against time. Sin, as I have tried to show, is in essence worldliness, whether in proud mastery of a world, in distracted abandonment of oneself to someone else's world, or, as is always the case, a subtle mixture of these. To entrust your life to time, however, is to acknowledge the impermanence and imperfection of all worlds. It is to dwell within the situation in which time has placed you, suffering and doing what you must, in the faith that by submitting to the demands of time, you are submitting to the demands of God, the Lord of time. Now that was a mouthful. That was a long passage. But that line, to entrust your life to time, is to acknowledge the impermanence and imperfection of all worlds. That is the phrase that really resonated me from, with me from that passage. Now, what does that mean? Well, one thing is, I think that the future is the enemy of the hope, of hope in some ways, because the future is that area of our lives in which we project false identities. It's the enemy of hope and happiness because it's that area of our lives that we think we have under control. It is the area of our lives where we want to exert our will to become this, to become that. Um, I remember when I was in graduate school, my first year of graduate school, um, I was, I just turned 23. I went to a small Christian college as an undergraduate. I grew up in rural central Pennsylvania and I found myself in Washington, D.C., over my head in a doctoral program. And I really was on the verge of total panic. I was suffering immensely from anxiety attacks, from panic attacks. And uh, I really just thought I'd made a huge mistake by going to graduate school. And I remember I called my parents and I said, hey dad, um, I think I'm coming home tomorrow. I made a big mistake by, by coming here. And my dad said, well, mom will have dinner ready. Um, so, uh, he said more than that too. He was very comforting. Um, but I still, I really thought I made a huge mistake. Um, and I remember very clearly waking up the next morning, lying in bed, staring at the ceiling, and thinking, you know what, I'll go to class. I'll just go to class this morning. It was my favorite graduate seminar with the man who now is my doctoral advisor. I'll just go to class. And I walked in, and we were reading St. Augustine's uh, City of God for this political philosophy seminar. And he said this. He says, well, since we're talking about Augustine, I really have to give you a little rip on happiness. He said, most of you here are first-year PhD students, and I know what you're thinking. You will be happy whenever you finish your degree. But you know what you'll say then? You'll be happy when you get a tenure-track job. And then you'll be happy when you get tenure. And then you'll be happy when you get full professor. And then you'll be happy when you're married, and when you have kids. And then you'll think, I'll be happy when my kids finally leave the house. And then I'll be happy when I can retire and enjoy the kids being out of the house. And before you know it, you're 75 years old, and you've never been happy. The future was the enemy of happiness because of where you continually projected these ideas you had. Somehow, and I'm, I'm I always have trouble articulating this, but somehow hope has to be compatible with living in the present. It has something to do with the future too, but it can't be the enemy of the present. Hope cannot be the enemy of the present. And I'm not sure how best to describe that. 
I can tell it to you via stories like that one, that where you can see that we're, you're projecting into the future, that becomes the enemy of your happiness in this moment. So somehow hope has to relate the present and the future to each other in a way that is not killing of happiness, in a way that does not uh, lead us to simply defer, 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 defer into the ever-receiving future. And that story that my professor told me uh, is one that really stayed with me, and it's the best one I know to kind of describe this. The future is that area of our lives in which we construct worlds. We construct selves. We try to control it. One of the big themes of Mockingbird is our lack of control. We're addicts. We're all addicts in some ways. We don't believe in the freedom of the will. I don't anyways. Maybe in your lives, you have your lives together in such a way that uh, the freedom of your will is, is more apparent to you than it is to me, but I know I'm a very bound person in all sorts of ways. And I think uh, one way we try to deny that is by looking into the future and saying, I will do this, I will do that, I will control this. I will control this by making enough money. I will control this by getting these degrees. I will get this kind of job. I will have this kind of family. The future is where I think when we try to exercise the freedom of our will, where we typically project it. The future is the realm of the false self. So how do we live in the present without sort of totally taking our eyes off the future. Hope, like I said, hope involves both of those things. I'm not sure entirely. Um, I'm not entirely sure. I want to read to you a passage from Ted Hughes, uh, the poet. He was married to Sylvia Plath. Um, this appeared on Mockingbird recently, for you Mockingbird readers. Um, I want to read this to you. It's another long passage. I, I think eventually all this will come together in a way that makes sense to you. But this is what he wrote in a letter. Ted Hughes wrote to his son Nick in a letter. He said this, amongst other things. Every single person is vulnerable to unexpected defeat in this inmost emotional self. At every moment behind the most efficient-seeming adult exterior, the whole world of the person's childhood is being carefully held like a glass of water bulging above the brim. And in fact, that child is the only real thing in them. It's their humanity, their real individuality, the one that can't understand why it was born and knows that knows it will have to die in no matter how crowded a place, quite on its own. That's the carrier of all the living qualities. It's the center of all the possible magic and revelation. What doesn't come out of the, that creature isn't worth having, or it's worth having only as a tool for that creature to use and to turn to account and make meaningful. So there it is. And the sense of itself and that little being at its core is what it always was. This is where it gets good. But since that artificial secondary self took over the control of life around the age of eight, and relegated the real, vulnerable, super-sensitive, suffering self back into its nursery. It has lacked training, this inner prisoner. And so wherever life takes it by surprise, and suddenly the artificial self of adaptations proves inadequate and fails to ward off the invasion of raw experience, that inner self is thrown into the front line, unprepared, 
with all its childhood terrors around its ears. And yet that's the moment it wants. That's where it comes alive, even if only to be overwhelmed and bewildered and hurt. And that's where it calls up its own resources, not artificial aids, not picked up outside, but real inner resources. That's the paradox. The only time most people feel alive is when they're suffering. When something overwhelms their ordinary, careful armor and the naked child is flung out onto the world. That last sentence, let me read it one more time. That's the paradox. The only time most people feel alive is when they're suffering. When something overwhelms their ordinary, careful armor and the naked child is flung out into the world. Now I said at the start that hope takes place amid suffering. And I think this passage gets at something essential about what that means. That this construction of worlds that I've been talking about, our desire to control the future, our desire to shape our identity a certain way. I am this. I am that. I am a student at the University of Virginia. I am a professor. I am a priest. I make this much money. All the things that are kind of exterior, all the things that are external, all those details of our lives, there are moments when they get stripped away. And when that happens, I think that is when hope actually becomes possible. This looking to the future I've described, the construction of worlds, um, suffering comes into play precisely because that is what it tears down. Suffering is what tears down the desire to control and to project into the future. It strips away our false self and lays us bare. Totally. Now, this idea of suffering being the kind of precondition for hope, I think this is very, very true. For the reasons that Ted Hughes uh, articulated in that letter to his son, that it is when we are suffering we feel most alive because we are actually getting in touch with the truth about ourselves. Now, I, this came home to me in a very um, difficult way uh, about a year ago. Um, when I told you I was going to talk about hope from the heart, this is what I was getting at. Um, uh, about a year ago, um, almost a year ago exactly, I was arrested for... Um, driving under the influence. I got a DUI. Um, uh, I was in Richmond having dinner with a friend, had a little too much to drink, drove home, uh, and was about 20, 25 minutes outside of Charlottesville when I was pulled over, about 2 a.m. Uh, and for some of you, that might not be a huge deal. I mean, it's, it's like a bad thing. It's, it's not good. It makes your life difficult in all sorts, all sorts of ways. But for me, it totally wrecked me in all kinds of ways. Um, there was this moment, probably, there was a number of low moments in this experience for me, um, but there was a low moment when, uh, when I was in handcuffs in the officer's car. He let me sit up front. Uh, he, was, he was gracious. And, and my hands were cuffed in the front, not the back, so he was treating me well because I was polite, I guess. Um, uh, he asked, he had to fill out these forms, and he said, so, you know, my address, you know, 
various details about me. He said, what, what do you do? I said, I teach political philosophy at the University of Virginia. <laughs> and he looked at me like, you have to be kidding me. And then to like make the sort of pathos of the situation even greater, he said, uh, how do you spell professor? <laughs> I thought, oh my goodness. P R. Yeah, I'm the drunk one here, supposedly. And you're asking me how to spell professor. Uh, he wanted to spell professor, like P E R F E S S E R. And I, anyways, the whole thing was just this bizarre sort of experience where, but having to articulate who I thought I was. I'm a professor at the University of Virginia. I'm an intellectual. I'm morally upstanding. Having that, me articulating that, and have it be juxtaposed with the reality of me being hang in handcuffs um, on the side of a highway, in a cop car, being taken to jail, um, that was, you know, to me, the greatest practical example of having a false self stripped away by the reality of who you are. And it forces you to ask certain questions. Who am I really? Who am I in reality? What is there about me that might be lovable or unlovable? That morning when I got out of jail, which was um, quite an experience, the Orange County clink, um, about next county over, I luckily my cell phone still had reception uh, or had energy left, and I called Josh Basco, who we live in the same house. And it was about 9 a.m., they let me out, and I called him, and he didn't pick up. And I called him right back, and he, he could tell something was wrong. He said, Matt, what's wrong? I said, I got in trouble last night. I need you to come pick me up at the Orange County Jail. And he did. And, you know, he brought me a cup of coffee. That's the kind of friend Josh is. He brought me a cup of coffee, and he picked me up, and he said, everything's going to be okay. And then the next person I called was Paul Walker. Um, and we got coffee the next morning, and he said the same thing, everything will be okay. And then he put me in touch with Les Wilson, who is a parishioner here and a lawyer at UVA, and I said, am I going to lose my job? He said, oh no, not at UVA. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I said, the next thing I said, is my life over? And he said, no, you could still be a lawyer and a Episcopal priest if the professorship doesn't work out for you. But, um, but it was this moment where before I really could see what would happen, I thought I could lose my job. I didn't know what I would do financially. Um, I don't know if I would be like kicked out of school. Your mind races. It kind of peers into the void and invents all sorts of things that cause you to be unable to sleep at night uh, or eat food or just, you know, exist in a, some way that's other than total panic attack. And honestly, that experience, and I don't say it to like dramatize it or something, I just could not talk about hope without telling you this. Um, that suffering was one thing that taught me a great deal about hope because it made me confront the false selves I had constructed. It made, it made me ask really hard questions about myself. 
Now, what is the way I responded to this? Um, how did I get out of this place of immense suffering to get to hope? Um, this is the only way, again, that I can talk about hope, is to tell you what my inner life was like during this period of time. Um, well, one, for months I was just totally devastated and depressed. That's why I was drinking in the first place, was because I was horribly depressed. Um, and the DUI was kind of like a capstone to that depression that just escalated it more. And um, so for it wasn't like I had this happen to me and then simply snapped out of it. It was months and months and months of agonizing depression. Um, and one day, I, you know, I couldn't get out of bed. And I walked over to my computer, and I emailed Paul Walker. And I said, I think I need to see a doctor. I think I need to see a doctor and go on antidepressants, which was true. And the interesting thing was, you know, one, why did I not go on antidepressants in the first place? Because of my pride. Because of a false self. I am not the kind of person who has to rely on, you know, medication for some measure of happiness. It didn't, the reality of my situation didn't measure up with the kind of person I said I was to myself. So that was one thing that helped me uh, immensely. But really the most important thing, and this is one of the final points I'll make, is that I want to think about the relationship between hope and love. Two of the three theological virtues. Now, uh, there's a great poem by a, a French Catholic convert called The Portal of the Mystery of Hope. And he says this. Faith is obvious. Faith can walk on its own. To believe, you just have to let go of yourself. You just need to look around. In order not to believe, you would have to do violence to yourself, frustrate yourself, harden yourself. In order not to believe, my child, you would have to shut your eyes and plug your ears. In order not to see, not to believe. In other words, the, the Charles Biggie, the poet here, is saying, Faith, if you look around, there's something about the splendor of creation that can instill faith in you. And then he says this, charity is obvious, meaning love is obvious. Charity can walk on its own. To love your neighbor, you just have to let yourself go. You just have to look around at all the distress. In order not to love, you would have to do violence to yourself. In order not to love your neighbor, my child, you would have to shut your eyes and plug your ears to so many cries of distress. And then he says this, but hope is not obvious. Hope does not come on its own. To hope, my child, you would have to be quite fortunate to have obtained and received a great grace. It is faith that is easy and not believing that would be impossible. It's charity that is easy and not loving that would be impossible. But it's the hoping that is difficult. Hope is the hard one. It's the one that in many ways I have the least sense of how to talk about it, how to describe it. But I think it's connected to love in an interesting way. That is, uh, it is being loved that I think inspires hope. It was being loved in the midst of my suffering that taught me something about who I am. It was being seen for exactly what I was, horribly flawed. Uh, making irrational, poor decisions. 
wasting money on court fees, possibly endangering other lives. All that, being seen for that at my worst, and yet being loved by people around me, made hope possible. I think hope, I started with the definition of hope as being um, willingness to entrust your life to time, because I think that gets at the first points I made about engagement. It, it's anti-escapism, about the present and the future and the construction of worlds. But really, I think, to arrive at a definition of hope, if we can define it, at the end of a talk, means this. Here's what I, my provisional definition. Hope is living into our destiny, which is to be fully known and fully loved. Hope is living into our destiny, which is to be fully known and fully loved. And I think when it comes to suffering, you are laid bare, though that's the fully known part. You become known for what you are in all its ugliness. That is why suffering is the precondition of hope. The fully known part. That's where that comes from. And then to feel loved in that condition, that I think is what inspires hope. It allows you to move forward somehow. It allows you to see yourself for what you could be rather than what you are. It allows you to see yourself for what you are and not hate yourself and not hate that person. That's a better way of saying it. So hope is living into our destiny, which is to be fully known and fully loved. This is why I think I don't want to wade into too much uh, of complicated theological waters, but I really do believe that there is both a vertical and a horizontal element to grace. That is, we as human beings can mediate God's grace in a, in a kind of mysterious way. It's not the same as God's grace to us, but we give each other glimpses of it by how we treat each other. I like that idea of glimpses. That there is a lot of suffering in the world. There's so many reasons not to hope. But I do think that occasionally we have these glimpses of something deeper and truer. And those things point the way to our nature and destiny. That is, when I was loved at the absolute nadir of my suffering, that taught me something about what is the deepest thing about our existence. It taught me something about the nature of God, even. Um, in the midst of, you know, really being a wreck in the weeks after I got my DUI, um, I was sitting in the living room talking with Josh, the gentleman who picked me up from jail. And I said, you know, I'm thinking about getting a tattoo. <laughs> and he said, what? what? What tattoo would that be? And I said, well, I think I would like, sort of like, under where my watch would go, I want to get God is love in Latin. And he said, Matt, that's a terrible idea. Don't do that. <laughs> Don't do that. Um, which violates one of my own life rules, which is never get a tattoo where a judge can see it. Um, I live by that rule. Um, he said, Matt, you're just, you're just kind of, um, you know, 
thinking crazy. You're just talking, you know, out of this place of difficulty. Don't get a tattoo. And I didn't. So Josh was a good friend to me by, you know, discouraging me in that. But where, why did I have that idea for a bad tattoo? Um, it's because in some essential way at that moment, I honestly felt God's love in a way I hadn't before. Um, like that, that statement that God is love took on some kind of reality for me that was different than before. It wasn't an abstraction. I had really been laid prostrate in a way I never had before in my life. I've never been more embarrassed or ashamed. I didn't tell many people for months. I kept it from my parents for as long as I could. For the longest time, there was half a dozen people who I, who I told this to. Most of whom are in this room, actually. Um, but I think love relates to hope in that way. That is, when we are fully known and fully loved, that is what generates hope. Precisely because, what, we, what do we say at the end of the uh, creed? We say every Sunday morning. I look for the resurrection of the dead in the life of the world to come. What does that mean? Well, obviously it means a lot of things um, that we can't spend too much time getting into. But I think it means this, that someday the glimpses we have of being loved in this way will be everything. That they will no longer be glimpses, but all there is. That we will all be fully known and fully loved in the presence of our Savior. And that, that is why the glimpses are important. That is how love generates hope. In other words, the glimpses we get here and now are a foretaste of what the redemption of creation will mean. And this is not escapism, because it's saying, I will still be me somehow. And this is not simply projecting my ego either, because I'll be me, but not me in some way as well. We'll be transfigured in ways that are very mysterious to me. I haven't read the Bible to you yet. Uh, which I purposely waited to the end. Um, but the, my Baptist childhood is you know, making me very nervous about my lack of attention to the text. <laughs> uh, this was not very... Um, What's the word for, the, for preaching um, that Presbyterians like? Expository, yes. This is not a very good expository um, talk. Let me say this. <clears throat> uh, Romans 8. We know that the whole creation has been growing in labor pains until now. And not only the creation, we ourselves, who are the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly while we wait for adoption the redemption of our bodies. For in hope we were saved. That verse has always been extraordinarily important to me. And it took on even more importance after the experiences I described to you. The sense of growing, that is what we feel when we suffer. Of waiting for our redemption, that, that is what we feel. But I think also the fact that we feel that points to something essential about who we actually are. 
the truest thing about us. One more point. Um, if anything I've made is, is coherent and makes sense to you, is pointing to something real, um, I think then uh, it allows us to try to live hopefully. I think it points the way to, to somehow to get our hands around what hope might be, what it might look like concretely. Um, and I think in some ways, That hope, hope and, and love, as I've described, can't be fully separated. Um, that love generates hope. And someday, uh, love will be all there is. Um, I'm frequently asked by my former students, by people I get in conversations with, uh, to kind of justify the religious faith I have, um, why I am, however difficultly doing so, trying to hold on to Christianity. And it comes down to this, um, what do I think is the deepest thing about reality? Is it really nothing? Is suffering all there is? Is suffering the final word? Uh, I don't think so. And all these things are bound up for me. It's that love is the deepest thing, that God is love. So there are some days that is the only thing I fall back on, that love is the deepest thing in reality. That there is some kind of gentle, patient love that is sustaining the universe we live in. I come back to that a lot. And I think when we, when we love each other, it both inspires hope, and we are in working with the grain of the universe in a way. I want to read one more thing to you. I began with Auden, the title of my talk, The Wood and the Gift. And I want to close with another Auden poem, in Praise of Limestone, at the end of it. This is what Auden says. Insofar as we have to look forward to death as a fact, no doubt we are right. But if sins can be forgiven, if bodies rise from the dead, these modifications of matter into innocent athletes and gesticulating fountains made solely for pleasure make a further point. The blessed will not care what angle they are regarded from, having nothing to hide. Dear, I know nothing of either, but when I try to imagine a faultless love or the life to come, what I hear is the murmur of underground streams, what I see is a limestone landscape. Now, there's a lot to unpack in that poem, but I want to re-emphasize one line. The blessed will not care what angle they are regarded from, having nothing to hide. The hope I possess has been the glimpses of that I've gotten in this mortal life, this transitory life. I think they point to uh, something essential about our natures and our destiny. And hope for me is is sustained by that, the glimpses, the times I've not cared or had no control over what angle I was regarded from, had nothing to hide and still felt loved. So that is the definition of hope I give you. Hope is living into our destiny, which is to be fully known and fully loved.
we can talk about that uh, Q&A or breakout sessions or whenever, but that's, that's what I have. <laughs>